Welcome everyone, this is Molly Rowan Leach and I'm your host for the ongoing series Restorative Justice on the Rise, sponsored in part by the Peace Alliance and by the generous donations of participants such as yourself. This extraordinary archive from March 28, 2013 features a profound conversation that we had with the extraordinary pioneer of restorative justice and the modern field, Howard Zare. I'd like to mention that the Zare Institute at Eastern Mennonite University recently opened its doors and it offers a series of webinars, one more in spring 2013, more this fall in 2013 fall, as well as a summer peace building institute that starts in May. You can find out more about Dr. Zare and the Zare Institute as well as the Peace Building Institute during the summer at emu.edu backslash cjp. And for more information about restorative justice on the rise, how to donate, and how to tap into our extraordinary library of archives and audios, please go to dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. And we'll see you, we hope, in the future, every Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you and enjoy this archive with Dr. Howard Zare. After Good afternoon, everyone, and such a warm welcome to you all. This is Molly Rowan Leach. I'm your host for the Peace Alliance's Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is an ongoing telecouncil series, also now including a worldwide webcast. And we're really glad to see you here this afternoon for this special edition. And I'm going to be introducing our distinguished guest in just one moment. But before I do, just a few brief announcements about this space. We're going to be together for an hour today, just like every other council time. And what's really great about this space, too, is that we feature a wide constituency of people in the field and in related fields, people with experience um, and people who are new, so to speak, to the field of restorative justice. The Peace Alliance uh, strives to provide a free and highly accessible platform for uh, gathering with featured guest speakers and each other to discuss the important points of restorative justice and its incredibly rising occurrence here in North America as well as in our world. And we hope that you'll access all of the archives as well from this series now in its second season. We have archives from everybody from Arun Gandhi to Dr. Johan Galtung, the amazing Kay Pranis, and so many others doing equally important work grassroots and internationally in this field. You can access everything that I'm mentioning at our primary website, which is dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. Again, we want to thank the Peace Alliance for their sponsorship of this series and also announce that the Peace Alliance has embarked upon a special pilot program in Colorado, partnering with Representative Pete Lee on a House bill that's up for vote here shortly called the Restorative Justice Pilot Project. It's the second of its kind 
that Representative Pete Lee has sponsored. And we are really hoping and crossing our fingers that all the legislators here in Colorado will be on board with that bill up for vote shortly. You can find out more about actions you can take to support that bill. We have an action tool to write your legislators right out of your email at uh, thepeacealliance.org. That's thepeacealliance.org. Now, throughout today's council and with every council that we host, we also open up for live questions. And we'll be doing that probably around the half an hour and towards the end of the call. To do that, you just need to press 1 on your telephone keypad, and we'll make sure we try and get to you. Today we have a very robust international group, and we'll do our best to answer some live questions with our distinguished guests today. Speaking of which, it is just my honor and absolute pleasure to introduce to you, which many of you, of course, probably are very familiar with the work of Howard Zare. Now, Howard is widely known, as many of us know, as the grandfather of restorative justice. He began as a practitioner and theorist in restorative justice in the late 1970s at the foundational stage of the field. He continues in this third decade to deepen the principles of restorative justice and grow its practice worldwide. He has led hundreds of events in some 25 countries and 35 states, including trainings and consultations on restorative justice, victim-offender conferencing, judicial reform, and other criminal justice matters. His impact has been especially significant in the U.S., Brazil, Japan, Jamaica, Northern Ireland, Britain, the Ukraine, and New Zealand, which is a country that has restructured, as many of us know, its juvenile justice system into a family-focused restorative approach, causing a dramatic drop in youth crime. Also, very much of note, Howard is a prolific writer and editor, and he's an incredible photographer and photojournalist, and he actively mentors other people in the field. More than a 1,000 people have taken their taught courses and intensive workshops in restorative justice. And as I was saying in the green room, I, I feel like, uh, Howard, you're a living tree for this field and have influenced so many people, your students and mentor, co-mentors and people from all over the world that you've worked with in so many different countries. And I just so warmly welcome you today for Restorative Justice on the Rise. Welcome, Howard. Well, thanks, Molly. I have to meditate on this tree image. We're having the tree trimmers come to our property next weekend, so I don't know. I think <laughs> about the implications of that. <laughs> I'm glad to be here with you. That's great to have you. I wondered if we might start out. You have such a incredible breadth of experience over your lifetime, really, a good portion of it. And I wondered if you'd like to share a little bit about uh, what initially brought you into this field. I don't know how many people may know the background story, and we'd love to hear it. Well, I I don't know how far to go back. I I, I know I I uh, very early in life I developed this concern about justice. Um, I then went to Morehouse College in Atlanta. Uh, this is a traditionally black college that is was where Martin Luther King Jr. was on the faculty, and then went on to teach in a historically black college in Alabama. And it was during that time, my, my PhD had, had to do with crime. 
but it was during that time in Alabama that I began to get involved with offender advocacy. I was uh, I did some work for uh, advocating for prisoners, and I also worked with a colleague, and we put together research teams that helped uh, help defense attorneys pick juries in in uh, all death penalty cases, prison riot cases, and so forth. And I had really I had what I suppose the traditional advocate's perspective. Um, I didn't know anything about victims, and I didn't really want to know about victims. It would just confuse my world, and I really, you know, we were the good guys. The moral, the moral clarity of it, I liked. You know, we were the good guys. The system was the bad guys. And then I moved to Indiana, kind of a midlife crisis, and I moved to Indiana, and I was directing a halfway house for ex-offenders, which promptly burnt down. And uh, the board decided that. I, there was this idea of bringing victims and offenders together that had started in the community, but it wasn't going anywhere, and they suggested I should get involved in that. And as soon as I did, the whole thing was dumped in my lap. But I, it, it hugely just switched my whole world around. When I listened to victims and heard their side of it, I then began to realize how much they were part of the equation. And then when I saw what happened when victims and offenders came together, I knew there was something. There was something really different here. So it really began in practice. Um, you probably know the story, the history, the case in Elmira, Ontario in 1974 that's said to have kind of kicked this whole thing off. But we didn't really have a theory or even a name for the field. Uh, so it was in the early 70s, I mean in the, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, I began to think about and try to articulate what we were actually doing in practice. And... Uh, found this word, restorative justice. I couldn't remember where I got it, but a researcher from South Africa was here a few years ago going through my files, and she found an article by Albert Eglash that had some elements of what I would call restorative justice, but he didn't really want the victims involved in this thing. But he had a he had a series of terms, and one of them was restorative justice, and I had underlined it, and then it came back to me that that's where I'd come up with that, where I'd seen that term. So that's sort of my own short form of my own personal journey into it. Very fascinating. Um, and, you, and you spoke of that case in 1974. Could you just say a few more words for for us on that case, just in case anybody isn't aware of that, the, the one sure. in 74? Sure. In 1974, two young men in a small town called Elmira, Ontario, went, got drunk and they went up and down the streets vandalizing some 22 homes. And as you can imagine, the community was really upset. This kind of thing didn't happen in that community. And there had been a group, as I understand it, of citizens and church people who have been meeting on a regular basis, kind of think, how do you do justice and peace in our own communities? You know, we can talk about world peace and all that, but how do you actually do it here? And Mark Yancey, who was a probation officer at the time, he was charged with a doing a pre-sentence report and a recommendation, and he came to this group and he said, okay, we know what's going to happen in this. They're either going to get a slap on their hands or they're going to go to jail. Either way, are they going to understand what they did? And the victims are all trust in the community is upset. They're not, you know, all, all, they're going to have all these questions. They're not going to get their money back. And a fellow named Dave Worth said, you know, they ought to have to meet these people and pay them back. And Mark said, oh, I can't say that in a pre-sentence report. So they agreed that Mark would, that Dave would write a letter to Mark recommending this. And and Mark would attach to the back of the pre-sentence report, which he did. And the judge looked at it and said, well, I can't do that. But on sentencing day, for some reason, he said, I sentence you to go back and meet these people. And Mark and Dave admit they had never thought about 
how you do this. I tell the story in training sometimes because, you know, even you can, you can do this. This is not really rocket science. I mean, they basically admit they took these two guys and they would point them toward the front door and say, you go knock on the door, announce you're a criminal. We'll be right behind you. And they got everything from the red deck who had a beer can who had been actively looking for them to, um, to the elderly Baptist woman who invited them in for tea and cookies. They got the whole range. And, and that's where it started. They, they managed to pay back everything. Um, some years later, a few years ago, actually, maybe it was eight or nine years ago, I don't know, the, one of these young men was in college. He had turned his life around. He's sitting in the class. And the visitor from outside from this organization comes in and tells the story. And he suddenly realizes, this is me. <laughs> he was mm. so pleased. He, he, he wrote to me and some of the others were so pleased that something good had come out of this bad thing he had done. So that's what's considered to have kicked it off. It's not that there weren't any precedents for it or anything like that, but it was that that case that then caused them to form what they called a project. They didn't call it a program. They called it a project. And that began, people began to hear about it. And then some probation officers in Elkhart, Indiana, both of these were Mennonites as well, um, got the same similar idea and then heard about the one in Kitchener and started trying to do it. And that's when I arrived. There was they'd done a few cases that wasn't going very far, but the word had gotten out. People had heard about it. They didn't know quite what it was or how to do it, but there was a lot of interest in it. Mm. So And so I directed that first program in the U.S. for a few years and then began to develop the materials like a training handbook, a volunteer handbook, a guide, things like that. And then people started coming from around the world to look at this thing. I was just wondering, um, Howard, if you if you also have a, a success, I guess maybe success isn't necessarily the word, but a, a, a brief story that you'd like to share of witnessing a particular case or, or being a part of a particular case that had a unique uh, flavor or, or quality to it that perhaps led to um, a particularly deep resolution or at least a more further understanding, um, whether it be a, a, a what we might call a more violent case or a less violent case? Well, one of the early cases that, that really impacted me, and I was not the facilitator, it somebody else. Uh, we, we, we were training community people to be volunteers because that was my commitment to engaging the community. And this case was this... Uh, two young men had burglarized the home of the street commissioner and his wife. And so they brought them together in, the, in their home because we used to do that. They don't do it so much. Or at least they, if the people who had been victimized were open to it, we would beat the home because that was really impactful. And so they had this positive meeting. And then the, the couple decided they wanted these two young men to buy a piece of furniture that fit the Oriental, the, the Asian flavor of their house. And they said that for two reasons. One of them is they wanted to be able, they wanted these young men to understand who they were enough to know what kind of furniture would fit in there. And secondly, they wanted to be able to tell their friends that their birds are bought this for them. <laughs> well, it, it turns out there was only, it was hard to find this stuff. They ended up going shopping together. So here we are. We have the two burglars and the victims going shopping together. Wow. And then a couple months later, this woman is walking down the street, and who does she run into with one of her burglars? And she says, how are you doing? And he says, well, I'm fine, but I lost my job. And she said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to this factory. I'm on the way to this factory. She said, oh, I know the owner. I'll call him up and get your job. 
and, I, and then I knew something, something was going on here because this is not your normal sequence <laughs> in a criminal case as I knew it. Wow. But that was one case that always comes to me as being just really impactful on me. Mm. I'd like to also, just before we go too far today, ask you if you might just give us a, a brief overview of the important points of restorative justice and what it, what, what it means to you, what it has meant to you over the years. Um, and then maybe seg just briefly into where, where things are at right now in your view, especially in the United States. Yeah, that latter question is hard to answer. So much, <laughs> so much is happening. I, right. I found nobody that can really track it. Well, at the beginning, we thought of this as we actually called it victim offender reconciliation. We later moved away from that reconciliation, reconciliation term, and I'll explain that later. But we thought of it as encounter, chance for victims and offenders to meet in a facilitated encounter. And that's still a very core kind of process. In the intervening years, there's all kinds of different processes, not just a victim-offender conference, but these larger family conferences and community conferences and circle processes that are also enriched the process. But I gradually began to realize that it's much more than an encounter. It's a way of it's a it's a way of not only addressing wrongdoing, it's a way of being in the world. The latter thing used to really mystify me. People would come up to me and they'd say, you know, restorative justice is a way of life or changed my life and I couldn't get my head around this until mm-hmm. Well, for one thing, restorative justice is very values-based, and I've tried to, in all my work, try to make sure we exclude that. But I'll come to that in a minute. To me, restorative justice, and I find myself, as my little book of restorative justice does, starting often by saying what it's not, because there are now so many misunderstandings, partly because some of them are natural misunderstandings, some are because of the way some people have articulated it, um, some are because restorative justice in a lot of ways has been co-opted and used for, the term has been used for a lot of things that aren't very restorative. Uh, I heard in, 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 uh, in the Belfast one time, I heard a revenge shooting being called restorative justice. Uh, so it's, the term's yeah. gotten pretty watered down sometimes. But I say it, it's not about forgiveness and it's not about reconciliation. That may come out of it. Uh, but you are, if you're going into this, you're not being asked to reconcile. You're not being asked to forget. And that's really important for victim mm. groups to know that because they need to make their own choices on that. That's what it is about, go ahead. Howard, I just, excuse me for interrupting, but I really want to underscore what you just said there. That feels to me like one of the common weaves in the discussions and forums here that um, – it's really important, it seems, to make sure on behalf of victims that they know that they're safe in this process. And, and what, what you just mentioned is that um, it kind of ties into the idea that this isn't a means to an end and that there's not an expectation of a certain result. But if it comes about from the conditions created, of course, that's, that's wonderful, but it certainly isn't something that we're, we're pushing. Is that true? Yeah, restorative justice is about um, addressing the needs, the harms of the needs that have been involved in this. It's about finding whose obligations it is to do that. It's about engaging the people involved. If people choose to reconcile, if they choose to some level to forgive, that's totally up to them. But our goal here 
It's to meet needs and hold people accountable. So I mean, restorative justice is grounded in this understanding that what is really harmed is people and relationships. It's a very it's a relational concept of of, of harm. Um, it it says that when you when you wrong, do something wrong to somebody, what matters is the harm you've caused to people and to relationships. And whenever people are harmed, they have needs. And so restorative justice is about addressing those harms and needs. The second principle, I think, is that it's about responsibility or obligation. It's about holding people responsible for the impact of their behavior. So obligation, the first obligation is probably on the part of the offender. But society has obligations as well. And then the third principle, in a way, way I'm articulating it here, is the principle of engagement. That those people who are impacted by an incident, a situation, a harm, need to be part of the resolution as much as possible. Obviously, there's variation in how much possible, how much engagement people can or want to give, but we ought to open that opportunity. So, regardless of what the situation is, the first question is not do should these people meet. The first question is who has been impacted by this thing, and what are their harms and needs, and what are the obligations, and what's the process we need to address all those things. And then around that are our values. I think I always I always cite three core values, and in English start with R. One of them is respect. I think ultimately, in, in my experience with offenders, a lot of offending behavior is is driven by a desire to get respect, although on very unhelpful ways. And then when we put them in a legal system that doesn't respect them, it's just like violence begets violence, disrespect begets disrespect. And when I talk with victims, so many of them, you know, part of the trauma they've experienced is the disrespect they felt from the hands of the offender. Uh, often they feel disrespect by the system and even their loved ones because their loved ones don't want to hear this, they don't want to grapple with it, and they say things like, you need to move on, you shouldn't be so angry, and so forth. So I think if we just restore the core value is about respect. The second one is responsibility. And we, in our in our American culture, we put so much emphasis on rights, and we hardly ever talk about responsibility. Restorative justice is reminding each of us that we are responsible for our actions, and that when our actions negatively hurt some, impact someone, we have responsibilities. And the third one is this term, this value of relationship. It reminds us that we are interconnected and that what we do affects other people. And so, in a way, it's kind of countering this American individualistic rights-oriented orientation, I suppose, by reminding us what most traditional people around the world know, and that is that we are essentially interrelated, which is exactly what neurobiology is telling us. They're telling us our, our brains are wired to connect with other people. Uh, so it's important to keep in mind the values, but all, the, the principles that are all for the values. And I think that's why so many people say it's a way of life, it's reminding them of these core values and principles. Mm. That's so very powerful. I just I want to just take a moment here. Um, I want to come back to that in just a second, but I'd like to mention, you. of course, you penned many books, and one of them you just mentioned is called The Little Book of Restorative Justice. And it's a part of a, a wonderful series that seems fairly related. I know that Kay Pranis is a former guest here. That has, right, she's got a book in that series. Uh, again, that title is the Little Book of Restorative Justice. You've also you also have a book called Changing Lenses, uh, 
a new focus for crime and justice, as well as uh, an incredible photo journal, so to speak, um, called Transcending Reflections of, of Crime Victims, and then yet another called The Little Book of Contemplative Photography. So the, if you Google, of course, um, Howard's name, I'm sure you'll be able to find this uh, wide library of what, what he's authored. I also want to oh, go ahead. In the little book, I, this is a little book series. I'm the editor of the series, and so people may be interested in knowing that the newest one, which will be out this spring, is by David Karp, and it's a little book of restorative justice for colleges and universities. Oh, wonderful! So I think it'll be a, it'll be a very helpful book for people in academics. Well, that's great. I also would like to announce that the um, Easter, that Eastern Mennonite University, which is just an extraordinary university in Virginia. And they, they're focused um, for the Center for Justice and Peace Building. They have many programs that focus, of course, in peace building and restorative justice. And recently, uh, Howard and Dr. Carl Stauffer um, are co-directing the recently founded Zare Institute. And there's also going to be a webinar this spring that the Zare Institute is producing and more this fall. We look forward to hearing more about those. And for more information, you can go to emu.edu backslash CJP. That's short for the Center for Justice and Peace Building. I also would like to make mention that there's an incredible Summer Peace Building Institute that starts in May. There's over 200 countries represented and gathering and convening on the EMU campus. And to find out more about that, you can also go to emu.edu backslash CJP. Really, really good stuff happening in your programming there at EMU. So it's quite an exciting place to be, actually. (laughs) And if you're just joining us on the webcast or live uh, via phone or Skype. Welcome. We're talking with Dr. Howard Zare, and we're just delighted to have him with us today. And Howard, I just wanted to go back for a moment. You, you know, you, you've mentioned um, quite a bit about the victims in conflict and crime. Could you say a little bit more about how restorative justice, and I know you fleshed it out a bit there just now, but what are the ways that the the punitive system, the the correctional systems over the past three decades have have prevented there there being uh, more support for victims? And what are the ways that restorative justice is answering to that? And what other things can we continue to do and be aware of to support victims in the process specifically? Well, one of the reasons this whole thing started is that we were so aware that victims were being left out of the process. After all, it's, it's a state versus the offender. You know, the victim isn't even part of the definition of the crime in the legal system. And that they were being re-traumatized often by that legal system because they were either left out or their story was so warped because people would plead to or would be charged with with offenses that didn't sound like what actually happened and all this. But over the years, I've learned and I've gotten more specificity. I, I say that when you're victimized, uh, and I'm talking here about crime, but it applies to a lot of other kinds of victimization, you have a whole variety of needs. And some of those you need to work out personally and with your therapist and your loved ones and so forth. 
But there's a cluster of needs that I call justice needs that I keep hearing from victims. And in my experience, when victims have these needs addressed, they are able to move on their journey more easily. And when people get stuck, it's often because they haven't had those addressed. And there's five clusters and five needs that I've identified. One is safety. They want to know the steps are being taken, that this not happen again. They know it's no guarantee, but they want, it, they want steps in that direction, which is one of the reasons they often do favor uh, rehabilitation programs, because they maybe they won't, you know, this person won't do it again. The second thing they want, and this is a big one, they want information. They want to know what happened and why it happened and why you picked me and why you stole the things you did and why you attacked me even when I was doing everything you told me to do and why my, what my daughter's last words were. People who are within a trauma-like crime upsets your understanding of the world, the assumptions you made about the world. And you're trying to put your story, I call it restoring your life. You're trying to put the story of your life back together. And the only thing that will do that are answers to questions. And, and you need real answers, not the, the very narrow answers, the legally defined answers you get out of the legal system. They need, they need real answers. And often the offender is the one that has those answers. And, and that's the only way they're going to get those real answers. Um, so they, want, they need safety, they need information. They need a chance to tell their story. Again, they're trying to restory their lives. They're trying to incorporate this bad thing into their life. And usually, often they need to talk about it. They need to tell their story. And they need to do it in their own terms, not in the, even the uh, uh, victim impact statements. You know, there's certain things they can't talk about. It's often written and so forth. They don't find that very satisfying. They need to tell their truth. Uh, and they also need an experience of empowerment. When someone breaks into your house or holds you a knife point, they're taking power over your life. But when you can't get them out of your head, when you have these dreams that come to you at night, this anger that washes over you, you feel like you're somebody else is in control of your life. So we know even from the court process, the more you involve victims, the more satisfied they are with it because people need an experience of empowerment. And then the last one is the most complex. And I call... Uh, uh, I call it vindication, but it's a complex concept. Part of it is restoring shame with honor. I think shame is a huge dynamic in all of this experience, both victims and offenders. And, you know, it's shameful to be a, a victim often, and we're often ashamed of how we reacted at the time. We're ashamed that we can't get over it. We can't ashamed we couldn't keep our kids safe, all of those things. And part of vindication is restoring, is the journey from dishonor to honor to restoring a sense of honor. But there's another dimension, which I think has to do with reciprocity. It's with balancing the score. Uh, you know, I like to say that if, if, uh, if, if I give you a gift, you'll probably think you need to give me one back or you'll do this calculation ahead of why you don't have, to, don't have to do it. I say that the reason we exchange Christmas gifts and the reasons we sometimes want revenge come from the same place. We need a balancing the score. And there are harmful and negative ways to do it, and there are positive ways to do it. And the negative ones are where we go when we don't get a balance. So things like apology and restitution are ways of balancing the score. They're saying, you're not responsible, I'm responsible. So those, if, if we can, if justice can provide a way, and victims have to design, define their own needs, but to define this kind, these cluster of needs, I think most victims will have a much 
more positive experience. And that's what we ought to be delivering in restorative justice. Mm. Thank you. And uh, another another aspect of uh, what we might call stakeholder relationships is communities. And I'm just wondering if you could reflect and share with us about how we as communities in our local cities and towns and how can we better support and, and uh, you know, get out there and, and help activate restorative justice more fully in our communities? And, and how do, how, what is the relationship of, of the community itself as a stakeholder to the other stakeholders? Well, Judge Barry Stewart, who was, a part, was up in the Yukon, always used to, where they began to use circle process, always used to say, look, the reason we, our communities are as weak as they are is be- precisely because we're not involved in solving our problems. That, that community is strengthened when we are, come together to solve problems. And when we turn our problems all over the legal system, we are actually disempowered as a community, not to mention the fact that we get very simplistic ideas of what's going on in the community and what the, what's behind these wrongdoing and so forth. So restorative justice has always said that there are three sets of stakeholders. Some people would add the government as the fourth, but victim, offenders, and communities. How to operationalize the community is not always clear. Uh, my commitment has been to supporting community-based restorative justice programs. And I used to do training sometimes for probation departments and say, Here's what restorative justice is, and here's why it's important, and here's why you shouldn't be the one doing it. Uh, because I really believed, that, and I still believe, that that's one way to involve the community. Uh, Kay Tranis has really taken this much further by using circle processes and other things to engage the community in addressing their, both their needs and their resources. When she was a restorative justice planner for the Department of Corrections in Minnesota, she worked with many communities to identify what their needs were and what resources they are and what ideas there were from the restorative justice field about how to work at those. And I think Minnesota today still has the widest variety of, of community-based programs around uh, and it's a lot of her legacy. So I think getting engaged uh, in the issues, uh, finding mechanisms, uh, Fred Van Loo is a former prosecutor from Iowa who left, retired from prosecution a few years ago and is now on a campaign, basically, to help communities think about it. He, he, in 1991, he discovered restorative justice. He's been both a severe violence, a severe crime prosecutor and a juvenile and began to implement restorative justice as a prosecutor. And now he's been doing a lot of dialogues with community around things that are happening in his own community and other communities and about how communities can be engaged in that. And I think that's, that's a very helpful model of how to do that. One of our early webinars, which we, we've tried to record all of our webinars, and uh, the last one was on restorative justice in prison just a week or so ago. People may be interested, or actually this week, I guess, on Monday. Uh, that's recorded. But there was an early one where Fred Van Lu and Lynn Weatherby, a chief of police, talked about how restorative justice can reframe the relationship between the system and the community. Both of them are very excited about the potential restorative justice has to, re, to, re, to reframe the community and, and system uh, and the relationship between the two. And I think that's something we really need to think about. We all need, we need each other. The system, the justice system and the community needs each other. 
And the, the models that have evolved have tended to separate so-called professionals from community people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a new book out arguing the jury ought to be reframed, that the professionals in the system need the balance of the community, and the jury should be one way to do that if they were reframed. Um, it's another way to think about it. Mm. Now, the... Um the moment that we're in here, we've got uh, another 25 minutes with you, Howard, which is just sliding by here. Let's open up to live questions from our council members. If you have a question that you'd like to ask or comment um, to Howard, please press 1 on your telephone keypad, and I'll get to you in the next few minutes here. I'd like to start out, though, with a, a web question submitted from David, and he asks, how is restorative justice being used during and not simply before or after acute conflicts such as violence, civil war, etc., in order to diffuse the violence and build trust? Thank you, David, for that question. It's a good question. I don't know if I have a very good answer for it. My, my colleague, Carl Stoffer, who you mentioned has been on here, would be able to talk about that in some of this. His work, has, a lot of his work has been in Sierra Leone, South Africa, and so forth, on exactly these kind of issues. Well, one way communities are doing is using things like circle processes when people are in conflict, uh, prior to an actual event happening, but when people are in conflict, that provides space for people to begin to develop empathy for each other, understand each other, and so forth. Um, and I think that's a very powerful example. There are some groups that have been using with gang members parts of Boston at one time, I don't know if they're still doing this, were having regular circles that brought together city leadership, police leadership, and gang leadership for conversations uh, around the things facing them. Those are preventative kind of things that I think have a great deal of power. I don't have a lot of personal experience doing those myself, but I think they have a lot of potential, and I think it's a very important. You know, we don't want to just wait till something terrible has happened and then you know, restorative justice is fine then, but we need to move it up earlier uh, in, our, in the process. And, and are there ways that we can do that in our communities preemptively? I, I love that point that you bring up. That's, it seems like a very key point that we can prepare ourselves and intertwine that with what you mentioned earlier, that restorative justice is a way of being. And so that being said and felt and understood more more fully in our lives together, how how might we activate something even preemptive to something happening that would require perhaps a process? Well, part of it is training people in things like circle processes and other kinds of conflict resolution. I know Mary, uh, Molly Baldwin is the head of Roca up in the, you know, it's a suburb of I think of Boston where it's a pretty rough neighborhood, and she was telling me one day that they had they had trained a bunch of kids on street kids in circle processes, and one day. Um, Someone, not intentionally, but they ran over a child, and it was, the whole neighborhood blew up, and they had this funeral, and the funeral turned into a big fight. I mean, it just there's two teenage girls that started fighting, and just started to be a mess, and suddenly these two girls, who had been through this training, looked at each other and said, we need a circle, and they headed down to Roca, and they found some adults, and they spent a couple hours in a circle talking about what had just happened, uh, and then they said to but you know, um, so I mean that's the kind of, you know training people in these kind of things. Uh, the alternatives to violence program in prison, which trains people in prison to deal with their conflicts um, nonviolently, 
is so important. Um, I know in Pennsylvania there's one prison years ago that blew up in a riot except for one wing where it had had this training. Um, and I've been fortunate to be part of these trainings in prison, and actually some of my students go every year and sit in, are participants in the training along with prisoners. And it's, it's a powerful, powerful thing. So I think finding more ways to do that, I mean, teaching children. I know some teachers that told me that they teach kids to do circles, and then there's a uh, fight breaks out in the playground, and the kids go find a talking piece, and they sit in a circle, and they talk about it. Uh, so that's one one important way, I think, is just teaching all of us how to utilize these things. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to go back for a moment to what you made mention of around the archives from your webinar series. Yes. Do people access, the, access those archives at the same um, website address that I, I've been mentioning today, which is EMU? dot edu backslash cjp is that the same right. place? Right. If you go if you go down to the institute mm-hmm. tab, click on that, you'll see webinars, and then it's a place where you can watch past webinars, and they're free. We're right now we're charging ten dollars to join the live webinar, and the reason we're doing that is so many people would sign up and not show up. It was causing us problems, so we charge ten dollars for the live ones, but we actually have scholarships that people can't afford it. But the, but the, once they're recorded, they're free. Wonderful. And just again, that's the Zare Institute. So if you go to um, emu.edu backslash CJP, then you scroll down in, uh, to the Zare Institute, and you'll find the archives of those webinars and more. And the upcoming schedule, which includes one more this spring, and then another uh, another series beginning in the fall. Um, now. Speaking of which, let's let's just talk for a moment about your current uh, offerings and work. And uh, since the Zare Institute was just implemented recently, tell us a little bit more about that institute and also what's cooking for you in other ways um, with Eastern Mennonite University, as well as, of course, the Summer Peacebuilding Institute that's upcoming. It sounds like you're doing a couple uh, classes on restorative justice. So. Tell us a little bit more about what's present for you right now. Okay. Well, the Institute, yeah, it's fairly new. We're still sorting it out. But the tagline on the Institute is facilitating conversations and connections. And so what I, what we want to do is to help people connect with each other. So we're doing the webinars. We are maybe going to start some short not-for-credit courses online. Uh, we are going to experiment with some kind of we, we call them in the field palavers, kind of constant, limited numbers of people coming together. Like we've done this before with lawyers who are doing restorative justice, bring them together physically to talk about what they're doing and how we can help other lawyers and so forth. We want to do some of that kind of thing. The program as a whole it will be offering a, we offer a master's in conflict transformation with a restorative justice specialization. But we're also going to be offering uh, a restorative justice graduate certificate. Uh, and we are experimenting with online courses, trying to decide. We probably won't. We've offered a couple of those. In the long run, I'm sure we'll offer more. We may offer some hybrid courses where people online can join live with people in a classroom. We're trying to experiment, find ways. I mean, our program is very international. In that Summer Peace Building Institute, up to 200 people from 40 countries come together. To study together, but some of them, some people can't get here physically. So we're trying to look at ways to use the 
the web and media to enlarge the circle of conversation. And we, our, our teaching style, our philosophy, we call illicitive. That is, we assume that all of us are learners and we all have experiences to offer and that we're going to learn from each other. So we're not big lecturers. We're, we try to bring, we call ourselves learning facilitators. Uh, so we try to set up a context where we learn from each other. And so when we use the mm -hmm. web, we're trying to do that there as well. And not just have a you know webinar where you have a, flat, a, a PowerPoint and a, right. a voice. Well, so I just want to say that's what I appreciate so much about you and Carl and your team over at EMU, and the many people that we've you know that you've been colleagues with um, in some form or another. There's this aspect of connecting at the human level and understanding that we're all learning together, like you said, and, and that nobody is an expert per se. Certainly there's always a nuance that is unique in each case um, with relationships and as we move through conflict and, and processes together. So that aspect of humility seems so important. Um, and I'd just like to take a moment for uh, everybody here today to just open up the line to Matthew Albrecht, who has served for, let's see, I would guess almost um, 15 years now with the Peace Alliance. And he was formerly the executive director and now holds a new title as vice president of the Peace Alliance. Welcome, Matthew. And it's so nice to have you here with us today. Um, I noticed you raised your hand, so I figured I'd give you an introduction here. Oh, thanks, thanks. Well, it's great to be on. It's great to hear and learn more from you, Howard. I've heard about you for a long time, and it's a good opportunity to get to hear you. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you. Um, well, I just have, you know, kind of a general question. We're at the Peace Alliance. We're really trying to advocate, educate, and mobilize folks around shifting from the more punitive worldview, and in our case, militaristic worldview towards a more kind of restorative way of dealing with conflict, violence, criminal justice in particular. And with restorative justice, which is one of our favorite things to talk about, because it at least has the opportunity for a lot more restorative ways yeah. of dealing with. Um, I'm wondering what you've seen over the years. Have you seen a growing um, openness and awareness and, uh, you know, more recently in particular to the work? What are the big blocks to it? What do, we, what do we need to do as, as a movement kind of building group to help uh, raise awareness and build up understanding and support for it? Well, it certainly has, it certainly has grown. I mean, there have been up and downs and interest in it, but taking off soon after 1990, it's just really grown. And I, I'm just amazed at the, at the general knowledge and the number of variety of experiments and stuff that are going on all over the world. Schools are the biggest growth area, I think, right now. But I, the, the impediments, I think, are, are first of all, in Amer American culture, at least, is a very punitive culture. Uh, and there are so there's a really interesting history that traces how we got so punitive. But we are a very punitive culture. Uh, secondly, there is a huge industry driving this punitive system. There is what some people call a crime control industry, just like a military-industrial complex that drives it, and that, that that's huge. I mean, it really is. Uh, so, and we, I don't think we've figured out quite how to address that. 
Larry Sherman, a uh, researcher, does a lot of work with restorative justice. I heard him speak a few years ago, and he was trying to look at the at the slavery abolitionist movement and the restorative justice movement and why we weren't at the same place they were. And he said, look, the research is clear that restorative justice is more positive. He says, why haven't we gone further? He doesn't think we've done an adequate job of social networking. Uh, he, he used the Paul Revere example. Paul Revere, you know, is famous for that midnight ride with us. He said, well, he wasn't the only one out there writing, but Paul Revere had lots of contacts, and he's the one that had the biggest impact that we remember. The other, the other writers didn't know so many people. <laughs> so I think we, we have this, the networking we're doing is an important, is important step. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that's good to Matthew, anything you. else? No, thank you. appreciate it. Great Yeah, thank you. Thanks for everything that you do for the Peace Alliance and with yes, the Peace indeed. Alliance. I just want to go ahead and go on over. I saw another hand up here. Um, I'm going to open up the line to Hillary. Welcome, Hillary. You're live. Perhaps Hillary, um, maybe she's muted. I'll give you another moment here, Hillary. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, just uh, speak up. Your mic's open. And just uh, reminding everybody, if you'd like to um, have a question or comment here, just press 1 on your keypad. If you're on the webcast, you can also submit questions to the webcast. And um, I'd just like to, while we're, we're doing that, um, Howard, can you talk a little bit, tying into what Matthew just brought up, that it seems like we are really in need of empirical evidence, us as two-legged human beings. We seem to really enjoy having proof of something. Yeah. So one of the common threads, since we've been on kind of noticing the common threads of, of the, the dialogues we've had over the last two years, seems to be the rising need to identify and create evidence, statistics, and otherwise around restorative justice's efficacy, perhaps its uh, pre preventative uh, fiscal allocation towards um, sentencing and imprisonment. We know that that's very expensive. What are the things that you're seeing and maybe even pointing us towards some statistics if you know of any out there perhaps that you have or that you'd like to share today about uh, efficacy in either uh, youth programs or adult programs? Well, yeah, I hear a lot of that. Uh, And it's true, we do need a lot more research. There's actually more there than people realize, and the research, as Lauren Sherman said, is much more positive than the research about the criminal justice system. It always, it always seems hypocritical to me when the system asks us for more evidence-based research when the whole system isn't evidence-based. Uh, and I also have some, some reservations about quantitative research. It's needed, but it has its limitations, and we often don't recognize that. Mm-hmm. Having said that, we do need more research. Um, part of the problem, though, is and this is a bigger issue. I was just talking to a, a funding agency the other day about this. This field in North America, the restorative justice field, is lacking in infrastructure. Uh, the organization, VOMA, the Victim Offender Mediation Association, that used to provide a way for practitioners to get together, has basically defunct. And so there aren't good single sources where you can go to find it, where the stuff is collected. So the research is all over the place but there's no single source that really pulls it together for us. So we do need more research, but we also need that research that's out there to be consolidated somehow. 
so that people can actually access it. I'm getting so I get emails all the time asking me where the research is, and I I don't have time to keep up with it all. But we need somebody to pull that together. And um, I mean, the people that Mary Sherman and Heather Strang in 2007 pulled a lot of research together for the British government. They looked at 30 they looked uh, at 30 some studies from around the world of restorative justice programs. And now they missed, they didn't do New Zealand, which was really crazy. And I mean, there's, you tended to have a certain kind of program they looked at, but the research was very positive. On the part, part of victims, it found the reduced trauma, reduced fear. They actually recommended to the British government that if we were to implement this nationwide, we think it would, it would reduce the cost of healthcare because of the reduced post-traumatic stress. And they found generally lowered recidivism the particular models they picked weren't, I thought, the strongest model. They actually found one pro, one place where it actually increased recidivism, but it was it was a no-brainer. It was it was Australian, European, Australian police officers trying to hold conferences with Aboriginal kids, which were you know that you, I could, that's not going to work. <laughs> but generally, their research was consistent. Usually, a quarter to a third reduction in recidivism. But most of this research has been done for youth with the recidivism. I haven't seen much on the adult side. But yeah, we need more research, but it's also a bit hypocritical when the system asks for that, if, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that ties into where I'd like to go now, um, if we might. And thanks to Lori for a webcast question. Lori, um, you ask, a question or you state, you volunteer with a preventative restorative justice project teaching peacekeeper, peacekeeper circle practices to children grades one through five and their teachers. She asks, do you know of any program funding sources or of any similar programs that are preventative in nature? And she says, thank you, Howard, for all you do. Well, thank you. Um, this is another example of where we need some consolidation because these things are, there's lots of places that are doing these kind of circles for kids and I don't know where they are. Uh, some of the people, like my colleague Lorraine Stutz and Amstutz, who co-authored a little book of restorative discipline for schools, she may know. Uh, but there is quite a bit of it being done. I don't know funding sources, um, but I do think that the interest in funding sources is increasing. I've just had little feelers in the last while. Sounds like some funding sources are starting to think about that. And since this affects youth and affects prevention, I think there's potential, but I can't, unfortunately, point to any specifics. My work has mostly been in the criminal justice applications, and so I don't really know the school's field. Mm -hmm. Now, you've, you've done quite a bit of work with um, those who are incarcerated, the what we might call the offender and um, you also did that amazing uh, photo journal of, um, of, that capsuled the, the stories of, of prisoners and their families, true? Yeah, well, the, the, is, I mentioned, as you mentioned, I did this book with crime victims of severe crime called Transcending. Earlier I did a book of life sentence prisoners, photographs and interviews called Doing Life. And then more recently, Lorraine Stutzman Hampstead and I did a book of photographs and interviews with children whose parents are in prison. Mm. It's, it's called uh, What Will Happen to Me. So, so we, we were, go well, ahead. the goal was to give faces to all these people. Uh, right. Instead of the stereotypes that we use. 
I love that um, that 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 really equals it because because something terrible has happened that that um, people have been violated. It doesn't mean that um, we're certainly excusing the the crime and conflict, and certainly we're we're aiming to cre- recreate the balance and hold accountable those who have have what we say offended, and yet bringing the humanity back seems to be one of the key themes that we're really working right now, especially in this country, tied probably into that punitive way, that paradigm, that that practice, um, that need to punish, and the isolation that it creates. And I'm wondering um, if you might talk a little bit, since we've, we've gone over victims, we've gone over the communities, could you talk a little bit about offenders and, um, you know, people who, do you, do you have, first of all, do you have any thoughts on that word, offender, and do well, you think we need, you know, we, we might need a, a new word for for that, and um, if so, you know, also what what kind of relationship do offenders have in to, to restorative justice, especially after they are incarcerated? Well, that's that, a lot. Yeah, but. <laughs> it's a lot. Well, it's been interesting to watch that term evolve. When I first started this business, and we went from criminals to ex-offenders, and then offenders is supposed to be a better term. We talk a lot about the problem. Both the victim and offender labels are very problematic. Uh-huh. Um, People have some practitioners try to use the person harmed or the person who caused the harm. It gets awkward, and when you talk with the system, you almost get stuck with the victim offender language. But I have a former student who's a former prosecutor and is an attorney, and she, she just hates his language, so she was trying to figure out a term. Uh, <laughs> said, yeah, it's, it's very problematic, uh, the language. Um, yeah, I don't know where to start with the few minutes we have. Uh, we get, I get so many inquiries from people in prison who want some form of restorative justice and yet there's so little available to them. Of course, one has to talk with them always about what their motivation is, whether it's just to them. And the first thing I always do in, some, you know, in that kind of encounter is I try to have them test what their motivation is, whether it's really concern for the victim or whether they're trying to ease their own conscience or what. But it, it is really important. Uh, Barb Caves in this Series, the little book series has a book called The Little Book of Restorative Justice for People in Prison. And as she and I did seminars and focus groups and stuff, she realized we had to start with helping people in prison understand the web of relationships they are in and how behavior affects and then move out to that, to the concept of restorative justice. And that turned out to be a, a very positive way to, to approach this, I think. Mm. I'm watching the time, though, and I know you're going to have Right, right. We've got a couple minutes to close here. And so just inviting, if you have any remaining comments or questions um, here live, do press one on your keypad. And while we're we're in motion here towards closing, Howard, I just want to mention again, for everyone's knowledge, the webinar series that the Zare Institute um, produces and, and shares with the world is going to have one more occurrence this spring and then coming this fall, much more happening. You can access all the information and the archives of those webcasts at emu.edu backslash CJP. And please make sure to share with people about this incredible opportunity with the Summer Peacebuilding Institute. Pass it far and wide to your networks. I know there's a lot of peacebuilders 
and people doing a lot of groundwork that um, may or may not know yet about this incredible opportunity starting in May, including a couple classes with Howard. So make sure to go to that same website, emu.edu backslash CJP. I'm going to go ahead and open up the lines one more time here. I want to welcome Margie. Welcome to Restorative Justice on the Rise. Thank you so much, Molly, and thank you, Howard. I can't tell you how much this uh, last hour has meant to me. Um, I've been finding myself more and more interested in restorative justice, and I was so happy that you talked about the, the fact that it's difficult to find one area to get the research. And uh-huh. my back, you know, my background's in psychology, so you know, you go to a bunch of journals and you have it all there. Uh-huh. Um, are there any journals that, you know, specifically look to the field of restorative justice? And I think one of the reasons, of course, is because it's in the justice field and with the yeah. situation of our justice system, I think would make it difficult. But well, Thank you for the question. The Contemporary Justice Review covers restorative justice stuff pretty consistently. Uh, I've been on the editorial board of that. That's a contemporary justice review. There is a new, I think it's called International Journal of Restorative Justice that's going to be starting. In fact, I think there's two. There's one that's based in Canada, and there's one coming out of Europe, and that, that at least one of those will be Internet-based. Uh, so in the near future, we should have some journals that will be helpful. Hmm. That's a great question, Margie. Thank you so much. And I know that we're running out of time, but... Howard, I also wanted to mention today, make sure to squeak this in, you can catch Howard live at the upcoming Restorative Justice Summit in Colorado Springs, Colorado. That's May 9th and 10th, and he will be there as an honored guest speaker along with many other great people presenting topics. And uh, you'll also be out in Portland, Oregon, I believe, or maybe actually that's Cannon City, Oregon, for a conference. And when is that, Howard? Do you remember? That's uh, toward the end of June. Okay, that's towards the end of June. And who is your host for that one? I, I'm having a mind blank on that one. Well, it's the Northwest Forum on Restorative Justice, I think it's called. Great. Um, and also people should be aware that there is a National Restorative Justice Conference coming up in June in Toledo, Ohio and the focus will be on the intersection of race and restorative justice. Wonderful. Well, it's just been a great pleasure and such an honor to have this conversation with you today. Is there anything to capsule that you'd like to say before we sign off? No, I'm just glad that there's so much interest in this important field, and it's exciting to see that all the different directions that people take it. So many, it's gone so many directions that I never could have imagined. And that's <laughs> really exciting. Well, Thank again, you for having me on here. Oh, absolutely, and it's just been a pleasure, all ours. And on behalf of the Peace Alliance, I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and it's always a delight to be with you all from wherever you're coming in, all over the world. Thanks for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next week. Please go to dopeace.us um, and check out the Restorative Justice tab. There will be a posting of this audio archive as well as all the other archives for this series, information about the conferences we mentioned on this uh, call today, as well as other resources. Thank you again, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.